Let me invite you to turn your Bibles, in your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 8. And as you do, I'll give you a little fun fact about Brad Merchant. Not that you need any more. Um, You know, if you know me, I don't just dislike surprises. I hate them more than anything. Even more than salad, which is saying a lot about me. Which has perhaps never been more clear to my wife, Clarissa, than several years ago. I was in seminary, and I was a student in a class that happened to meet on my birthday. So she knew this, and she, she thought to herself, I have a great idea. I, I'll buy a birthday cake, some balloons, some party favors that all match, of course, and bring it all to his entire class on the night of his birthday so he can enjoy this beautiful night with all of his friends, and I'll surprise him. What a, what a fantastic idea. The problem, however, is that Clarissa was missing one important piece of information. I only knew one person in that entire class. <laughs> Count them, not 10, not five, one. Barely. In fact, most of the class was made up of people twice my age whose only desire was to get in and get out as quickly as possible. So you could imagine my reaction when, upon me sitting in the classroom, one of my classmates all of a sudden abruptly interrupts the professor and says out loud, uh, excuse me, it's Brad Merchant's, where's, who's, who's that guy? It's his birthday, and his wife is here and brought cake for everybody. Now, I'm, I'm just going to assume this. This is probably true. You're probably all godlier than me. So if you were sitting there, you would have been thinking, what a wonderful, thoughtful gesture. I, she must really love me. I, all I was thinking, I'm not kidding, I want to die. <laughs> E.T., phone home, beam me up, Scotty. Somebody take me out of here, Lord Jesus. I hate surprises. Why? Because I don't like being unaware of what's happening in the moment or what's going to happen at any given moment. Now, why share that story? Because in Isaiah chapters 8 through 10, prophet Isaiah does not want the people of God or us to be surprised. In chapter 7, last week, Pastor Mark helped us understand that Syria and Israel, not Syria, don't find that in Isaiah 7 anywhere. (laughs) If I did, it'd be Lucky Charms, just letting you know. (laughs) Syria and Israel, of course, team up to attack the tribe of Judah, and as a result, Ahaz panics. And instead of trusting in God's protection, he calls on the superpower of Assyria to deliver him. And as he does, Isaiah prophesies what will happen as a result. Look at verse 7 in chapter 8. We talked about this a little bit last week. Here's the prophecy. Isaiah says, as a result, here's what's going to happen. Verse 7, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. In other words, Judah will be annihilated. And now in verse 11 of chapter 8, Isaiah seems to turn his attention towards who Eric talked about earlier, the remnant. The people of God who are trusting in him and living according to his promises. 
And as he does, Isaiah tells them what is happening presently and what is going to happen in the future. In other words, Isaiah doesn't want the people of God then or the people of God now to be surprised. So this morning, as we turn our attention to Isaiah chapters 8 through 10, we are going to discover, I believe, three certainties, three certainties Isaiah gives to help God's people know with full certainty what is happening around them and what is going to happen in the days to come. So if you come to church this morning and you're looking around the world and there's a bunch of crazies out there, we are a part of the craziness, by the way, and we are thinking to ourselves this morning, what is this world coming to? Well, Isaiah has three certainties custom-made for you. So let's begin by looking at Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. It's what he says, For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me. Now pause there. That's another way of saying what I'm about to tell you is really, really important. He continues on. And he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, here's what he said, verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But, verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. What's happening here? Well, because of the oncoming war between Israel and Syria, against the nation of Judah, is Isaiah says to the people of God, don't fear like those who don't trust God. Don't do that. Instead, let God be the one you fear, and he'll protect you. He'll be like a sanctuary for you, Isaiah says. So Isaiah encourages them to fear God over everything, even though, here's the catch, many people will persuade them to do otherwise. Verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, what is he talking about? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, fortune tellers and spiritualist mediums were often sought after by people to talk to the spirits of dead people to get advice on current day issues. They do this all over the place. And evidently, Isaiah needs to warn God's people to steer away from this practice because evidently many had fallen into it. Why? Because many of the Israelites, God's chosen people, remember, had stopped trusting in God's protection and started trusting in a whole lot of other things. Which leads us to the first certainty Isaiah wants to give God's people as he looks around his world which is this, everything is broken. What exactly is broken, you ask? Well, Isaiah points our attention to two realities. It's all over the place. First reality of what is broken, the human heart is broken. The human heart. 
The hearts of his people are so broken that they fear things over and above fearing God, verse 12. They look for wisdom everywhere except from God, verse we just read, verse 19. And at the end of the day, they get angry at God when they don't get what they want, verse 21. And that's just chapter 8, folks. Listen, the Bible teaches that the human heart is so broken by sin that the prophet Jeremiah cries out in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Even God's chosen people, those who he had provided for, covenanted with, and protected, sin against him when their lives are threatened. And this, my friends, is the central problem with humanity. We love to sin. We don't just like it. We love it. We crave it. We're addicted to it. Ever since the fall of Genesis 3, every human heart naturally attempts to rebel against and rule over and against God in countless ways. For the Israelites, it looked like fearing invading armies. It looked like pursuing pagan philosophers for wisdom. It looked like complaining when they didn't receive what they believed they deserve. But for us, it looks, it looks like gossiping about another person when they hurt you. It looks like snapping at your kids when they don't obey, obey your very wish or telling a half-truth so you can impress others. It, it takes a thousand different faces, doesn't it? And here's the thing, no one had to teach us to do this. We have our PhDs in sinning, all of us. John Calvin once said that our hearts produce idols like a factory produces products. The difference is our conveyor belt never stops. That's why theologian J.I. Packer once remarked, I never get to the end of killing sin in my heart because it's constantly expressing itself in new disorderly desires. In other words, sin is a bit like dust. When you think you have it clean in one area, it pops up in another. So as Isaiah looks around him, the people around him, he says, turn over to chapter 9. Look at verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, here's what I see, chapter 9, verse 17, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. This is exactly what Isaiah sees as he looks at the world around him. Everything is broken. How so? Well, first, the human heart is broken as a result. Secondly, society is broken. Look what he says in the beginning of chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. And the writers who keep writing oppression. Verse 2. To to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may take the fatherless their prey. What in the world does that mean? Commentator John Oswald, Old Testament scholar, explains when he writes the following. This is a good summary. He says, those responsible for maintaining the laws of the country are doing so in such a way as to enrich themselves to the expense of the helpless. That's what's happening. 
such that the very laws of society, which Isaiah calls iniquitous, which is also another word used in the Hebrew, translated other places in the Old Testament for the word evil, were put into practice. Why? Look at verse 2 again. Here's why they do this. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. So, so Isaiah looks around and sees at a micro level the human heart is broken. But as that blossoms, he sees at a macro level not only is the human heart broken, but society at large is therefore broken. Such that the vulnerable and marginalized of society are exploited so that the rich get richer. It's the Robin Hood of the Old Testament. Or, or to put it another way, what was the problem? Here it is, one sentence. People made in the image of God are treating other people made in the image of God like they don't matter. And friend, do we not see this in our world today? From Jim Crow laws that perpetuated the devouring, devaluing of African Americans to the present day implications of Roe v. Wade that has led to an estimated 62 million abortions to date. Our society is not much different from Isaiah's. It is desperately broken. Brothers and sisters, our text this morning ought to remind all of us that all people, no matter who they are, where they're from, what side of town they grew up on, what they've done or not done, no matter their background, sins, regrets, disabilities, appearance, or age, all people ought to be treated with dignity and respect because all people are made in the image of God. So, so here's what I want to say to you. If you're here today and wondering if you matter because you've been told out there that you don't, my friend, I want to say on the behalf of our entire church, you matter. Because you are made in the image of this beautiful God, you have inherent worth and you ought to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. You matter. Isaiah looks around and he sees a culture filled to the brim with oppression of people made in the image of God. So Isaiah looks around the world and tells God's people what we already know to be true. Everything is broken from society around them to the hearts within them. It's all desperately broken. And what will be the result? Look back at chapter 8, verse 22. Here's going to be the result of this brokenness. Chapter 8, verse 22. He says, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, which leads us to the second certainty Isaiah gives God's people, which is this, judgment is near. When Isaiah says that Israel will be, quote, in verse 22, thrust into thick darkness, 
What does he mean? Well, fast forward to chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. This is interesting to see. In chapter 9, verse 13, here's what he says. He said, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So, what does he do? Verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. Verse 15, the elder and honored man is the head. And the prophet who teaches lies in the tale. In other words, what Isaiah is doing is he's giving some cryptic language, and then he's explaining what he just said. He does that a lot in the book of, uh, of Isaiah. What is he saying? He's saying, in other words, God is going to pour out his wrath from head to toe. First on the elders, because they're responsible, the leaders of the day. And then he's turning to the prophets, because they haven't told the truth. But it won't stop there. It's not like the other people, therefore, are exempt from wrath. And this is chilling. Look at verse 17. The Lord does not rejoice over their young men and had no compassion, none, on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer. In other words, since every person has turned from him, no one is exempt from his judgment. Not even the most vulnerable of society who he's been arguing for to take care of, the fatherless and the widow. And the way Isaiah describes what God's judgment on God's people will be like is chilling. Look at verse 19. What's it gonna be like? He says, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. Awful image. Or more explicitly, turn over to chapter 10, verse 17. He says, the light of Israel will become a fire. And his holy one, a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. God says in verse 15 of this chapter that he is going to use the Assyrian army, who Israel's partnered with, to be like an axe to chop down the nation of Israel. And then what's he gonna do with the ax? Well, then he is going to wipe out the Assyrians, but not all at once. He's going to do it slowly over time. It's gonna be painful. It's gonna get ugly. Such that, what will it look like? Look what he says in verse 18. He says it's gonna look like a sick man that wastes away. Isaiah's message to the people of his day and to us this morning is that judgment is near. For the nation of Israel, it took the form of the Assyrian Empire. That was bad. But for us, it is much, much worse. John Piper put it this way when he, when he writes, quote, Poverty, hunger, disease, war, 
crime, climate change, addictions, homelessness, ignorance, sex trafficking, these being great global sufferings, but they pale in comparison to the peril of being under the wrath of God. They are all tragic, but they are all temporary. They may last a lifetime, but God's wrath lasts forever. And can I just ask you, when was the last time you pondered the final, ferocious, forever wrath of God? Apostle Paul describes the coming judgment of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in this way. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That phrase, this eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, Paul refers to is what Revelation 14, 19, and 20 and many places in the Gospels call hell. A place that is described by Jesus in really stark terms. For instance, in just alone in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus describes hell as a fire that burns forever, an outer darkness that is filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he calls it a place that involves nothing but destruction and misery. The reason hell is so terrible is because rebelling against a great God deserves a great punishment. My Christian brothers and sisters, Isaiah's reminder that judgment is near should remind us that there are people all around us, maybe even living under your own roof, who will split hell wide open if they don't turn to Jesus. Which, upon knowing that, should not be, hmm, interesting data point, what's for lunch? Knowing that should change your life. It it should reorder our priorities. What we think about, what we get fired up about, it should change all of that. Guys, can we just be honest? Instead of us spending so much time and energy wooing people to a tribe, speculating over the next controversy we read online or arguing with other Christians about things that won't matter 10,000 years from now? (laughs) Let's spend our time and energy spreading the good news of the gospel to every tribe, nation, and tongue that will spend forever in hell if they don't hear the good news of Jesus. Let's do that. Or in the words of C.T. Studd, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Sign me up for that. Why? Because as Jonathan Edwards put it, this world is the only hell a true Christian will ever endure. It's why Edwards, who faced a lot of pain in his life, 
read this just a couple days ago. In one of his journal entries, he was really intense time of pain and suffering. He said in his journal, Lord, would you help me to remember when I experience this pain, this is the closest to hell I will ever get. Edwards is saying that if you've embraced Christ by faith and turned from your sin, this world is as bad as it gets. But then he goes on, and it is the only heaven an unbeliever will ever enjoy. If you're not following Jesus and still living in your sin, this world is as good as it gets, y'all. Isaiah's reminder that judgment is near should cause each of us to think about the fate of our souls apart from the grace of God. The truth of the matter is that we are not much different than the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day. Everything is broken. Our hearts are allergic to loving God. Our society rejects God and oppresses those he loves. As a result, judgment is near. And guys, there would be no hope for God's people in Isaiah's day, and there would be no hope for us without Isaiah chapter 9. Beginning in verse 2. says the following, the people who walked in darkness, those who we just got talking about, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. These people, Isaiah says, will be the benefactors of great joy. Another way of saying blessings. So the light terminology that runs through the book of Isaiah, manifold blessings they will experience, which will result in increased joy. Why? Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute of the tramping warrior in battle torment and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, Isaiah is saying that one day there will be a great warrior that will put an end to all the people suffering and will conquer their enemy once and forever. So the question is, what will this guy be like? That's what the Israelites are asking. Okay, if that's who he is, this awesome warrior who's gonna crush everybody, what's he gonna be like? Verse six, how shocking. For to us, a child is born. How about that for a birth announcement? Child born, going to kill everybody. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. In other words, this mighty warrior won't come in the form of a champion, but a child. And the government, what does that mean? Well, the responsibility to be king will be his. Okay, that's freaking me out. He's a warrior, but he's a kid. Not babysitting that one. What's his name? What do I call him? 
Look back to the text. Verse six. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. The one wonderful you ought to underline in your Bible. In the Hebrew language, this was a word only used in the Old Testament to describe the things only God can do. This child's name, his character, will be characterized by the wisdom of God. Wonderful counselor. He will be the mighty God. He will be simultaneously, somehow, a human child and God Almighty. He will be everlasting father. Meaning, he will be marked by compassionate, tender, father-like care for his children forever. And he will be prince of peace. His kingly rule will result in the absence of conflict and the presence of prosperity. And what will be the result of his coming? Verse 7. Here's going to be the fruits of his labors. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, Isaiah is saying that there is coming a day when a child will be born who will lead with unfailing wisdom. He will rule with almighty power, love with fatherly care, and will bring peace that comes with no expiration date. Isaiah is telling the people of God in his day, everything's broken. Everything. Therefore, judgment is near. But you have hope because thirdly, Jesus is coming. In verse 1 of chapter 9, Isaiah tells the people that, you look at this, this is interesting. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. What does that mean? Well, in the first areas of land to be destroyed, destroyed by the Assyrians were two places called Zebulun and Naphtali. And Isaiah says, guys, that's going to get destroyed, but don't worry. Soon, God's going to make that a glorious way of the sea. The place where all that Isaiah describes in chapter 9 is going to happen is right there. Why does that matter? Fast forward to Matthew 4. Finger in Isaiah 9, flip forward to Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is about to begin his ministry. It's about to start. And where does it start? Verse 13. This is going to be on the screen for you guys to see because I want you to see this. This is really important. It says, In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Where at? In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 9. What does this mean? It means Isaiah and Matthew are working together to tell us, New Testament readers, the one who they were looking forward to has come. 
Ray Ortland explains this beautifully when he writes, quote, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. Then he has this great line. He says, his answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. The people in Isaiah's day could only look forward to the coming of Jesus for deliverance. But because we live on this side of the resurrection, we have all been given two glorious privileges. First, we can look back and receive mercy. We can look back at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and come to him with our countless sins and know that he is not only the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, but also the one who, in the words of the apostle Paul, became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus absorbed the Father's wrath for sin so that when we come to him with all of our sin and place our faith in what he has done on our behalf, we receive mercy. That's the point. In other words, Jesus experienced unleashed wrath. So you and I can experience unending mercy. And here's the thing, guys. You never have to coerce Jesus into showing you mercy. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, when a poor wretch who only deserves hell comes to him and says, will you blot out my sins? It brings joy to Christ's heart to do it. When a poor blasphemer bows his knee and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, it makes Christ's heart glad to say, thou art forgiven. He says, when any of you come to him and confess your sins and trust yourselves in his hands, it will be new heaven to him. Then he has this great line. You never have to drag mercy out of Christ. So friend, if you're here this morning and are in need of mercy, because either you aren't following Jesus or because you are following Jesus and you really blew it this week, Good news, you can come to him right now without a sales pitch and he will happily show you mercy. (laughs) Why? Because we can look back at his life, death, and resurrection and receive mercy. But the second glorious privilege that we have, guys, is this. We can look forward and have hope. Isaiah's prophecy is true in that Jesus has come. But the fullness of his prophecy is only fulfilled in part. We still live in a world marked by conflict, suffering, and sin. But Isaiah 9 reminds us that there is coming a day where, as Isaiah puts it, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. There's coming a day where every trace of sin and suffering will be no more. And Jesus will rule finally and forever with justice and righteousness. So brothers and sisters, let me remind you this morning that because of the promise that Jesus will one day come again, we can look forward and have hope in knowing that disease, distress, despair, and even death will not have the final word. 
or in the words of St. Augustine, Jesus endured death as a lamb and devoured it like a lion. We can look forward and have hope no matter what we experience in this life because he will make it all right again in the life to come. Or, to quote Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, great theologians, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Everything is broken. Judgment is near. But Jesus is coming. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. We need them. And living in the midst of a world that is so broken, we need help to remember that you are coming again. Well, in this day, would you help us to look back and remember that you have come and we can have hope and receive mercy. Help us to experience great joy as we rejoice over these things together now. In Jesus' name, amen.